May he be glorified today as we continue to worship him and as we receive his word. We're continuing our study in the book of Mark, which actually began, as I understand, in 2017. And uh, we, along with this, I think there are five uh, additional, uh, including this one, I should say, five additional sermons before we conclude our study in the book of Mark. Uh, the real Jesus is the overall title, and we're talking about special love, and our God is the God of loving kindness. And from the passage of Scripture that was read just a couple of minutes ago, and continuing with our understanding that we hear not for ourselves, but we're here for Jesus. All that we do is simply a response to what God has done and what God is doing. And so from this passage, I have selected the topic, the sweet fragrance of worship. The sweet fragrance of worship. So what is it all about? First of all, as we read these words, we understand that the Lord never wastes words. Uh, I don't recall ever finding where Jesus ever told a joke. Everything he said was serious. I don't mean to imply that Jesus did not have laughter in his life, for he did. But he did not waste words. And I... I'm certainly guilty of wasting words. Uh, oftentimes I try to be funny and fail most of the time. But Jesus speaks, and every word in the Bible is there for a purpose. The Word of God is, is God's revelation to us. It is our job to prayerfully study and understand what God is saying and what he means by what he says. And I say prayerfully because it is the Holy Spirit, as I said a moment ago, who actually is the one who illuminates our hearts and our minds to really gain an understanding of what the word means. And so the mention of the Passover and unleavened bread are not there just to fill the page. They're there because they're a part of God's divine plan. When we think of that, we think of the reality that there were actually seven great Jewish feasts, uh, and the Jewish feasts point to the Messiah. While we are accustomed to referring to these feasts as the Jewish feasts, a clear reading of Scripture lets us know that they were in reality God's feasts. They were ordained by God, and they declare something of what God is doing. And so they're referred to as the Lord's Feast. The Jews were appointed to observe them, but we must always keep in mind who it is that is behind these feasts. Primarily, if we study the book of Leviticus, we will find in chapter 23, it refers in verse 2 as the Lord's appointed times. And in verse 4, it says the appointed times of the Lord's holy convocations. In verse 5, it is the Lord's Passover. In verse 6, it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread 
to the Lord. And when we go to the New Testament, we understand that those feasts were given to the people of Israel so that they could understand the coming of the Messiah and the role he would play in the redemption of man and earth back to God after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. As I said a moment ago, there are seven great feasts or festivals given in the Bible. And the first one is Passover, which is the, the Lord's Passover. And it speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The second one is the unleavened bread. It speaks of holy fellowship and communion with God. The third one is the feast of first fruits, which speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth speaks of the Pentecost, which speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord sent. The last three of the great feasts are the Feast of Trumpets, which speaks of telling the whole world. Atonement, or the everlasting atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the Tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles, which speaks of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or he will dwell with us forever and ever and ever. In the New Testament books of Colossians and Hebrews, we learn that the feasts were a shadow of good things to come. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of those good things. He is the good thing. The text for our lesson opens with the time approaching for the celebration of the Passover and unleavened bread. Passover was observed on the 14th day of the first month, which was called Nisan, with the service beginning in the evening, and you'll find that in Leviticus 23. It was on the evening, as it was actually started in the book of Exodus, but it is outlined in Leviticus. And it was begun on the evening uh, of the day that Israel left Egypt. And Passover commemorates their departure from Egypt. It referred to the sacrifice of a lamb in Egypt when the people were slaves. God had instructed Moses to have the people take the blood of the lamb and smear it on the doorpost and the lintel of their houses so that it would be a signal to God to pass over their houses when he would go through the land of Egypt and destroy the firstborn in every household that did not have the blood. And it was the last of those great plagues that was put upon Egypt to let Pharaoh know that he had to let the people of God go. Exodus 12, 13 says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Question. How many of you believe that God is omniscient? Uh, let me ask you, how many of you really believe that God knows everything about everything? And so if God is omniscient, if he has complete, absolute awareness of every single molecule that ever existed in the universe, the question is, could he not identify the homes of the Israelites without the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of their houses? The obvious answer is a resounding yes. So why was this so important? I believe that first of all, it was to be on the part of the people of Israel an expression of their faith 
in the promise of God to deliver them. It was an expression of faith. I'm reminded of, as we've been studying the book of James, it says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, it was an action on their part. It was a faith action that they took to say, I really believe that God is going to deliver us by his almighty power. And so they put the blood on as it was instructed by Moses. It was also a lesson for people of all places and times that redemption comes by grace alone, through faith in the Lamb of God alone, who alone takes away the sin of the world. Let me say that again. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. The unleavened bread was used in the celebration because this showed that the people had no time to put leaven in their bread and give it time to rise as they ate their final meal in haste as slaves in Egypt. There's also a lesson of urgency in the unleavened bread for us. And may I say that if you do not already have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the time to do so is not tomorrow. It's not even this evening. The time to enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is now. Because you cannot be guaranteed that you're going to see the sun go down today. The wrath of God is coming upon the world and only those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb will be saved. I know some people don't believe in hell. But if hell is not real, then neither is heaven. If it's not real, then why did Jesus speak of it seven times even in the book of Matthew? And so we need a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to be just religious because religion does not equal righteousness with God. Romans 10.4, Paul is writing and he's talking about his desire for the people of Israel. He says, for uh, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They were very religious. We must keep in mind that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was being plotted by some of the most religious people of that day. They were the religious leaders of that day. They were the chief priests and the scribes who were very knowledgeable in the law, very religious. But they were plotting the death of our Savior. What matters to God is our relationship with him. And that relationship comes only through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Many call that narrow-mindedness. Please remember, folk, that I didn't make that up. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. And if Jesus is not the only way, he is not even a way. Uh, let me say that again. If Jesus is not the only way to the Father, he cannot be even a way because if that statement is not true, then he lied. 
and he challenged his antagonizers, which of you convict me of sin? In other words, he not only lived a sinless life, he declared that he lived a sinless life. And if Jesus committed even one sin, then he's not worthy to be our Savior. He could not be. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the saints at Ephesus, said that in the ages to come, God will put on display the surpassing riches of his own grace, that is, his undeserved favor and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He said to the saints at Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. May I suggest to you rather strongly that anyone who thinks he deserves to go to heaven in all likelihood will not make it. Salvation is a gift from God to those who believe, not a reward for those who behave. To present our own righteousness to God as the basis for his acceptance says a number of things which result in eternal separation from him. First of all, it nullifies the grace of God. The Apostle Paul said to the saints of Galatia, I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness come by the law, then Christ died in vain. Uh, let me paraphrase that. If a right standing in the sight of God comes by what you do, then Christ should have never been crucified. Secondly, it is an affront to God's holiness. God is infinitely holy. Sin separates. We forget that sin is first and foremost a condition that we inherited from Adam. It's not just the things you do. It is a condition, and it is that condition that causes you to do the sin deeds that you commit. God requires perfection, and you and I can't in a million years achieve that. And since we have less than 100 years, we should take his offer of salvation as a free gift and run with it. And celebrate him for his goodness. Thirdly, when we present our own righteousness before God, we're saying to God that you're not as wise as you declare yourself to be. <laughs> you see, if I could earn my way to heaven, then God sent his son to die needlessly. It says, God, actually, and I think I heard Charles Dunley say it this way, it says, you actually are saying that God, I think you're stupid. That you would send your son in, into this world to, to live and to die as he did when I can do just as well for myself. And lastly, it is to call God a liar. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, says the Apostle John in 1 John 1.10. And so the Passover is telling us something about what God has done. Passover and unleavened bread remind us of Jesus' mission of redemption. And that's why you see that in the first two verses of Mark 14. 
From the time that Jesus left his home, he was on a single mission to redeem mankind and the earth back to God. Central to that mission is his becoming the atonement for our sins. By his shed blood, he was to be and is the one who satisfied the justice of God on our behalf. He never lost sight of his mission. Even when he made it known to his disciples that he would go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. He did not step aside from that mission. One of his closest companions, Peter, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, that this shall never happen to you. You know, religious folk can say some really, really strange things. And now we laugh at Peter. We can say some of the strangest things ourselves. Notice what Peter said when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise on the third day. And Peter says, God forbid it, Lord. God did not forbid it. He ordained it. It was God who sent Jesus on his mission in the first place. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And while I don't have time to expound on that completely today, I would like to point out that Peter, like we sometimes, was selective in his hearing. He heard the first part of what Jesus said and became so focused on that to the point that he missed the last part. He heard suffering and crucifixion, but he totally missed the part about rising on the third day. An old preacher used to say, and I, every time I say old preacher, I have to chuckle because now I'm one of those old preachers. <laughs> but an old preacher used to say, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. If Jesus had taken Peter's advice, there would be no Good Friday. Had there been no Good Friday, there would be no Resurrection Sunday. And if there had been no Resurrection Sunday, you and I would still be lost, condemned to be separated from God for all of eternity. But praise God, all of these things occurred and Jesus had done it all. God has no plan B for the redemption of man. And if you're trying to work out a plan B, may I really, really impress upon you, you are really messed up. <laughs> Can I be honest? You know, there's no other way to put it. Because God only has one plan, and that one plan is all wrapped up in his son, Jesus Christ. There is no other no other. And if you are afraid to declare that, you have a problem. No, you don't have to speak about it as if you are something. Boasting in yourself is never to be, but boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ is always good and necessary. But there's another remarkable thing that I find in our text today. Knowing full well that in a matter of a few days, Jesus would experience the most excruciating pain of suffering 
many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, his beard being plucked out, being slapped, being spit upon, a crown of thorn pressed upon his head, scourging to the point of almost being unrecognizable, and then be killed by the awful means of crucifixion, yet having full knowledge of that, and that one of his own disciples would betray him, we find him enjoying a relaxing meal with his friends. What a remarkable thing. Jesus was passionate about showing us the Father. He was passionate about the mission that the Father gave him. You and I are good at spending time with people of like faith. But Jesus was known for spending time with people who were scorned by society. Just as he was passionate for the Father, you and I should be passionate about showing Jesus to the world. He spent time with a woman at Jacob's well. She had been married five times, and even the woman, the man that she was with when she met Jesus was not her husband. Yet he showered her with the Father's love. You and I ought to be about the business of doing the same thing uh, regularly. It should be a part of our lives. I recently heard a preacher expound on the value of meals in building relationships with people who do not know your Savior. And yes, we know about that. And we know about the fact that Jesus came and he was characterized as being one eating and coming and eating and drinking. But he said something that, that really stuck with me. He cited an ancient Proverbs, and I don't remember exactly where it was from. I don't think it was from the Bible. But he says that until you don't really get to know a person until you've eaten a pound of his salt. Now, everybody here knows that you don't eat a pound of salt in one sitting, else you would be dead. So if you're going to eat a pound of your neighbor's salt, that means that you're going to have to spend time after time after time after time after time with that individual until you really get to know that person and the person gets to know you. But you're not doing it just so that they can know you. You're doing it so that they can get to know Jesus. You don't really go to know a person until you've eaten a pound of his salt. We need to spend time with people who do not know Jesus. How else are they going to get to know him? The life of a Christian is to be lived in communion with others. First is to be lived with other believers. We need to, this fellowship to help each other to be strong. And uh, Hebrews 10 lets us know about that. But just like Jesus, it should be our regular business to spend time with people who do not know Jesus. Going back to our text, verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume, perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii. And the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her since she has done a good deed to me? For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish to do, you can do good to them, but you do not have, always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. 
Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That says so much, and I really don't have the time to deal with all of that. But allow me to say this, first of all. You can be certain that the gospel was going to be preached, and today we see 2,000 years later, the gospel is being preached. But not only that, he says that what she has done will be spoken of. And so we get to say a little bit about Mary today. The New Testament records six women who bear the name of Mary. There was the mother of Jesus. There was Mary Magdalene. There was Mary, the mother of uh, two of the disciples. There was Mary, the mother of John. And then there was the Mary of Rome, which Paul spoke about and wrote about in Romans 16. This was Mary of Bethany. She was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And you can read about that in Lazarus in, in Luke chapter 10. What we know of Mary is that she, her sister and brother, loved each other deeply. We also know that they loved Jesus deeply. Each time we see Mary, we find her at the feet of Jesus. She sat at his feet when he visited Martha and Mary in their homes. You already recall the story of how, how Martha was complaining that she was doing all of the work and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. And what did Jesus say? You know, Martha, you're okay, but Mary has chosen the best at the feet of Jesus. That's a question for you. How often do you find yourself at the feet of Jesus? Next, we find her at the death of her brother Lazarus, as Jesus has come on the scene and Martha has left the house and Mary stayed behind and, and Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. And then she called for Mary and Mary comes and she says the same thing and she's at his feet. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. We also find her at his feet. And I believe that this time is because of his gratitude of her, Jesus raising her brother from the dead. She's demonstrating her gratitude and she brings this very costly ointment, this perfume. And one has said that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. And if you may recall in your reading of the New Testament, a denarii was equal to a day's wages so that 300 would equal virtually a year's worth of wages. So it's very expensive. Very expensive. They called it a waste. And man, you, even though Judas Iscariot is the one that actually spoke out, uh, he was not the only one because there were others who were saying the same thing. It is a waste. But I want to remind you of 2 Corinthians 8 9, which says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Was that a waste? Was that extravagant? 
Jesus was born in a cow stall so that you and I could be welcome at the throne of heaven. Is that extravagant? He bore our sin burdens to Calvary so that you and I could be set free from the bondage of sin. Is that extravagant? While on earth, Jesus said that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, but he has prepared a mansion for you and for me. Is that extravagant? What motivates your worship of the Lord? What causes you to fall on your knees and raise your hands and say, Lord, I praise you. You're worthy of all glory and honor. You've done great things. From whence comes your, demo- your devotion? William R. Newell said, real devotion to God arises not so much from man's desire to show it, but from the discovery that blessing has been de- received from God while we were unworthy and undevoted. In other words, devotion is the reflection of a grateful heart. It is not an attempt to repay God for what he has done. Worship is supreme adoration, which results in imitation. John Piper says, worship is the way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. Is the heart, an expression of a heart of deep love, and that heart does not say, I gave too much, but I have so little to give. It is the heart's expression of the words found in the old hymn of Isaac Watt, when I survey the wondrous cross, and the last stanza of that hymn says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Sometimes the worshipful conduct of one toward Jesus is an occasion for conviction in others. Some people say it doesn't take all of that. Such conviction can prompt the expressions of worship in others, but very often it can cause one to become critical. The Pharisees were never happy when Jesus healed the sick, made the lame to walk, opened the eyes of the blind or the mouths of the mute. They were not happy when Jesus did it in person while on earth, nor were they happy when he performed miracles through his disciples when he went back to glory. Jesus wasn't saying that caring for the poor was unimportant. In fact, his teachings make it very clear that when you do it to the least of these, you do it unto him. But everything has its order. At that particular time, Mary had done what was correct. She did what she could. She did not come for food. She came for Jesus. She did not come to get. She came to give. She had worshipped Jesus for raising her brother, Lazarus, from the dead. But now she's anointing him for his own burial. She didn't come for show. She came for worship. If you leave worship service on any given Sunday, feeling that you didn't get anything out of it, your first question should not be what's wrong with the preacher or the worship leader, but what's lacking in your heart. The second question should be, what did Jesus get out of your attendance? 
Worship is not what you get out of it, but what you put into it. Let me say that again. Worship is not what you get out of it. It's what you put into it. It is not about the worship leader singing your favorite song. It is about you singing in your heart, oh, how I love Jesus. If it is about you, then you've set yourself up as an idol and it needs to be torn down. This final word is the anointing of the body was generally after the person had died. But Mary anoints Jesus before burial. I dare not say that Mary had a full understanding of what was about to take place. I do believe that she remembered that Jesus had declared himself to be the resurrection and the life. Perhaps you remember that Jesus had said a few days before that he was going to Jerusalem. If Jesus was to rise on the third day, there would be neither opportunity nor need for an anointing after. Mary worshiped in spirit and truth. She had a sweet fragrance of worship. Peter tried to talk him out of allowing himself to be killed, but Mary anointing himself for it. Her mind was set on the things of God. And as you ponder all that God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, let us think about this question. Is God's, amaz God's grace still amazing to me? Is God's grace still amazing? What Jesus did in leaving his home and glory and coming to this world and going to a, a cross to die for, uh, may I say, to die your death. Is his grace still amazing to you? Let that question ring in your hearts. We sing it, but it's a reality in our heart. That's what makes, what makes the difference. Will you stand, please?